The Psychedologist. Cape Town-based science writer and author Leonie Joubert has spent the better part of 17 years writing about climate change, energy policy, invasive species, and the hunger-slash-obesity-poverty paradox in African cities. She's now turning her pen towards two new homemade journalistic beats, the likely decline in mental health as communities face the existential threat of societal breakdown and climate capitalism collapse, and solutions journalism, because she's tired of spending her days doing a doomsday audit as the climate emergency unfolds over the course of her lifetime. I don't blame you, Leonie. She's been doing this podcast called The Psychonauts, which is basically an incredible audio book released in podcast format. It's self-funded, self-published. It is a piece of unabashed activism aimed at helping work towards the decriminalization of psilocybin so that this form of therapy can be mainstreamed in traumatized post-apartheid South Africa. The Psychonauts hopes to get a conversation going in South Africa about the huge potential of psychedelic as medicine. It's self-funded, self-published, all by Leone, a work of love and necessity. The podcast brings together three things. The evidence-based science from clinical trials from abroad, where psychedelics and MDMA-assisted psychotherapy for treating mood disorders and addictions are being applied. It brings together long-form storytelling. The podcast travels into the small but vibrant community of underground workers in South Africa, where people are using the substances for healing, spiritual awakening, etc., And the central point of the podcast as a high court bid due to start in 2019, which will aim to have psilocybin decriminalized, which Ibogaine is already legal and used by one or two clinics for rehab purposes. So trying to catch up psilocybin. Thank you, Leonie, for this wonderful conversation. I hope you all check out her podcast, The Psychonauts. Enjoy. Actually, I studied history at university. And uh, I've just always had a fascination with how the world works. And I think because of that, uh, I, I got writing about natural history and about climate change over the years. And then that expanded into food security, looking at um, food systems in the city and essentially why southern African cities often leave people hungry, heavy and sick. Um, not looking at individuals' behavior within the food system, but looking at the broader food system and why that nudges people in the direction of making poor food and lifestyle choices rather than making good ones. And then, of course, the link with poverty and the link with um, big corporations and how they they dominate the food system globally um, and what what the local expression of that is in terms of hunger, malnutrition, obesity, et cetera. So um, that's where really where my focus has been for the past 17 years. But um, a few years ago, I heard about a woman, uh, uh, a 70-something-year-old woman, very ordinary sort of suburban grandmother type, who had been arrested for allegedly hosting magic mushroom journeys or ceremonies. Um, and this was someone who I knew through writing circles. Um, we, we come from very different writing backgrounds and folk, uh, areas of focus. But, yeah, we, we knew of each other, and I was fascinated that this woman had been arrested for something as bizarre as mushroom ceremonies. I didn't even know that these things happened. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, um, 
so, yes, I heard about this woman who'd been arrested, allegedly for hosting mushroom ceremonies, very much a shamanic-style guided deep-dose psychedelic process from her home in the southern suburbs outside of Cape Town in South Africa. And uh, it was bizarre. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of such journeys, and I didn't think that someone like this would have been involved in uh, working with a substance that is illegal. In South Africa, it's a Schedule 7 substance, which is the same as a Schedule 1 in the States. So she was allegedly found with about two kilograms of dried psilocybe mushrooms in her home. And as a result of that, she was arrested and charged. And um, Did you know how she was reported or how they found Yes, it's, it's a little bit controversial. Um, so what happened was uh, one of the people who was allegedly attending the ceremony got distressed and he was able to leave the premises and he was found walking around the neighborhood at about three in the morning and a passerby um, assisted him to the local police station where in his state of distress he, he told them what was happening. So the police arrived and they raided her home. Incidentally, they were, they were very gentle with the other journeyers. They left them to carry on as they were. And... Um, so the woman was arrested, she was charged, and the likely outcome of a successful prosecution by the state could be 15 year, years jail term. Anyway, the only way that she could get around the charges was to make a case to the South African courts that um, the laws surrounding the illegality of psilocybe mushrooms uh, is unconstitutional. Um, so she launched a bid. She got a stay of prosecution on the criminal charges and she launched a bid uh, which will start in the Cape High Court fairly soon where she will ask the state to reconsider the fact that the substances are illegal. She's going to, oh, so this, she's going to ask the state to reconsider the fact that psilocybin is illegal here. Um, she's essentially going to ask for it to be decriminalized and incidentally we have just had uh, cannabis decriminalized here. So on the basis of the cannabis, uh, 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 yeah, sorry, I'm all over the place. Um, I can go into more detail on that if you'd like. It's also an interesting case. Uh, yeah, I mean, it makes me think of this article I just read this morning, <clears throat> um, where the governor of my home state, Massachusetts, said, we are so up to our ears in, in cannabis policy that we can't even consider decriminalizing or legalizing psychedelics which is just such bullshit okay. <laughs> like <Yeah. clears throat> and like are, aren't yeah. you up to your ears in like drunk driving things and you know domestic abuse and like what are we doing for that but um yeah i mean much as i would like to hear more on that and i think that you go into it on your show as well i'd love to hear um because you were mentioning the psychedelic ceremonies are serving like sort of a limited population in South Africa and your concern, which is completely valid. And we have that concern in the U.S. too, I think some of us about um, the uh, when the medicine gets brought to the mainstream, how will it be accessible to everyone? Yes, we do have a very interesting situation in Southern Africa. Um, there is a long tradition of using plants, um, indigenous plants to achieve altered states. Um, I don't know how many of those are psychedelic plants, but I know that there is a long and ancient tradition in that regard. Um, I can't go into more detail yet because I do need to do more research on that front, but I do intend to. 
The interesting thing about psychedelics, there is a small, a vibrant, but very small psychedelics community here in South Africa, using the substances recreationally in the underground, as well as ceremonially and uh, therapeutically. But it is very much um, associated with a, a, a community that identifies with a more Western and, dare I say, a more sort of white Caucasian, you know, community. That's just the nature of it. Um, there is great potential for overlap um, and for reach into communities that are more African identified. But it will take a lot of work. Um, there are many people who operate um, as traditional healers, sangomas, etc. And uh, what was um, that word? These are sangoma. Um, it's basically a, an indigenous word for a traditional healer, um, someone who's trained up in, in that um, a modality. Hmm. There's, uh, there's great potential to, to integrate the two, but it will require just conscious work. Um, there is uh, quite there, there is a, a small Rastafarian community that occasionally um, intersects with the psilocybin community, um, but it's very small. Uh, there is, yeah, um, it, it, it will be a challenge, I think, to get uh, psychedelic therapy uh, more widely accepted culturally. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then <clears throat> I grapple with this all the time, how these medicines traditionally were in the hands of spiritual leaders and teachers. And then to bring it to the mainstream, like the consensus seems to be do it through the medical model. And, you know, with the medical model, I see that failing, you know, in so many dimensions. And that's another concern. And uh, yeah, yeah, we could we could talk about that for a long time, a little bit more sort of background about the podcast and, and where I'm hoping to go with it. And it might speak to your concerns about the medicalization of psilocybin. So the podcast is very much trying to bring together the evidence based science that we're seeing coming from abroad places like Johns Hopkins, Imperial College London, New York University, which I'm sure your listeners are well familiar with. Um, it's bringing that evidence-based science uh, together with um, stories that I'm trying to dig out from the underground community using my traditional long-form narrative approach to show how people are using the substances here. And then, of course, the, the central sort of pivot point of the entire story is this court case, which will aim to have psilocybin um, decriminalized. And of course, part of the exploration and the research, which has been so interesting, has been discovering the fact that um, Ibogaine, um, the very potent hallucinogen, which comes from the Iboga plant from Gabon in, in Africa, uh, central West Africa, um, this is a plant which in the States or a substance which in the States is illegal, even though it's used extensively in the underground community to treat um, uh, opiate addiction. Now, in South Africa, for some reason, this substance was not illegal. Um, until recently, it was treated as a complementary medicine mm -hmm. and was used um, in the underground community and by some rehabilitation clinics to treat various addictions. And, uh, and then in 2016, um, there was an interesting and controversial case which brought the substance onto the radar of what was then the Medicines Control Council, which is basically, I guess you could say, your, our version of your FDA. 
And uh, the Medicines Control Council uh, realized that the substance had therapeutic potential, but that it obviously does have some physical risks associated with it because of the, the coronary risk. And as a result, they scheduled it as a Schedule 6, which is um, basically means that it can be prescribed by doctors for medical use and therefore can be prescribed for rehab. So this was is a really interesting development because um, one could argue if the state is willing to consider one psychedelic as a medicine, why not consider all? So that is a potential avenue that South African um, medical people could pursue if they wanted to have psilocybin um, legalized. The difficulty, and this is also the other steep learning curve, is that we have the state institutions that handle this kind of bureaucratic process, but they are severely undercapacitated. So I spent literally four months trying to get hold of what is now the South African Health Products Regulatory Authority. That's the new name for the MCC. I literally spent four months trying to get hold of some senior managers within the institution, sorry, within the, the organization to get comment on what processes would need to be followed in order, order to have psilocybin made a schedule six or lower uh, and have it as available for use as Ibogaine. And I haven't been able to get a single reply. Um, no one is able to speak with me. No one's been able to give me some insight. So it's made me realize we, we have two opportunities that are happening in South Africa at the moment. One is to go the bureaucratic route and ask um, our equivalent of the FDA to make the substance available as medicine, or else we can just go to the courts and say, please make it um, freely available for private use at home, i.e. decriminalize. And it seems like the latter is the most likely option. It's going to be the quickest option. Um, it will be quite a costly court process for the individual who is trying to pursue this route. But I think it's the only way we're going to get the substance freely available to South Africans. Because if we try to go the bureaucratic route through the MCC, then it's just going to take years and years and years. And we're going to get bogged down in lack of capacity as people are not able to process the paperwork. So, um, so yeah, I, I previously was pushing for the medicalization of psilocybin purely because I was concerned about the lack of accountability and transparency in the underground community. But I realized that, that it's, that's just not going to work. And of course, there is the potential of the big pharmace pharmaceutical companies to then come in and, and monopolize the process, patent mm -hmm. the processes of extraction of psilocybin, and then um, just, yeah, ring fence, ring fence the whole process. Yeah, yeah like Compass Pathways is doing. Exactly, <laughs> yeah. Closing off of the commons. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, my good friend Britta Love wrote an article for Symposia called 10 Reasons to End the War on Sex and the War on Drugs Now. <clears throat> and she brilliantly compared the different arguments on like legalizing sex work and legalizing drugs um, and showed how they're very parallel and in, in that decriminalization is far more favorable in a lot of cases, particularly for folks who would be working with, you know, either sex work or medicine work who are marginalized either by not being documented in the place where they are or uh, any other number of reasons and uh, not being able to jump through the hoops needed to be a legal pr practitioner of whatever. So decriminalization um, is less marginalizing, less, um, 
it presents less risk for people doing that. It's a great article. And I'm happy to hear that decriminalization may be the way of least resistance for you guys. That's that's actually really cool. And mm-hmm. I wonder, I think Denver, Colorado is going to decriminalize. It looks like they got enough um, signatures for a ballot initiative. So that's coming up. Mm-hmm. Yes, I've been I've been following that uh, through social media and uh, amazed that um, at how that particular effort has exploded in terms of getting um, people discussing the issue, which is wonderful to hear. We are um, frustratingly behind you in terms of where the global zeitgeist is shifting around psychedelics as medicine. Um, you know, there even though there's a, a small vibrant community here, um, the cultural attitudes towards psychedelics are still incredibly conservative. And uh, in spite of there being so much literature uh, supporting the potential benefits of psychedelics, the medical community here is not engaging with that uh, literature. So for the most part, when you speak to anyone in the medical community, whether they are researchers, practitioners, policymakers, they don't want to talk about psychedelics as medicine because it's just... It, as to borrow the term from Sam Harris, it's just too radioactive. <laughs> Have you heard of Sixto Rodriguez? No, our, our our line is a little bit bad, so you're breaking up. Um, <clears throat> but no, I haven't. Okay, Sixto Rodriguez was this singer, very small, not not known at all from Michigan. Oh, sorry, sorry. Are you talking about um, the Detroit musician who was so big in South Africa? Yes. Yes, Searching for Sugar Man. Did you see the movie? Yes, I did. It was incredible. Yeah, I recommend it to everyone. I understand that um, he became so big in South Africa because that was um, he was bringing a message of freedom and liberty and equality that wasn't it wasn't even legal to speak about some of those things. But it was like it kind of came in through the underground and then the the music caught on so much. And I wonder, and I hope I'm remembering it right from the movie. I saw it like a year ago, but I wonder if something similar somehow might happen with psychedelics and changing the the narrative and the collective uh, feeling about them. Uh, that's not something I'd really thought about. Um, I think I'd have to give it a give it a think. But um, you know what I think is really different now is uh, and um, you know when when psychedelics first became taboo globally in the sixties, we didn't have the internet. Um, how um, Rodriguez uh, kind of snuck into the his how his message snuck into the country in the nineteen eighties, which was essentially a police state, massive censorship. Um, you know, the apartheid government um, clamping down on any messages that that um, challenged its authority. How his man- message managed to sneak in is, is a curious thing. Um, what's different now compared with the 1960s when psychedelics were outlawed is that we have the Internet. And um, my podcast would not have happened if it wasn't for the fact that, A, I have access to all of the literature that's getting put out into the scientific uh, domain, and the fact that um, the confidence with which people like you and your colleagues are speaking about this subject abroad has allowed me to step forward and be very vocal um, in a way that I would never have even attempted had I not realized that the genie is out of the bottle abroad, um, and it's just a matter of time before it happens here. It was quite a risk to launch into this podcast. You know, I've been working as a science writer for 
17, 18 years in South Africa. I have many books to my name and uh, a very established reputation. And yet, um, because of the conservative nature of attitudes around psychedelics here, I was extremely worried when I first launched the podcast. Um, I was worried about reputational damage. And I was very tentative in the first months, just slowly trickle feeding stories out into the internet and didn't get huge uptake locally but just over the months as I saw people abroad speaking more confidently I realized that actually it was it was safe to be a little bit take to take a few more risks on this side and um, it's slowly getting picked up by some of the sort of uh, some of the um, radio shows and local newspapers are picking up on it now. And and um, people are getting hold of me behind the scenes. They don't want to talk about it publicly, but um, people are contacting me behind the scenes and, and sharing stories and asking me um, how to access journey guides, etc., which, of course, is difficult uh, to deal with because of the illegality. But, you know, I think it's a little bit like what happened when Michael Pollan's book came out. Um, suddenly, people started to get braver and started admitting their own use and their own sort of life-changing experiences. And I think we're going to see a very rapid shift uh, coming fairly soon in South Africa. Um, what's lovely is the conversation has started amongst it's not just the the underground community and using the shamanic sort of process to do more spiritual um, journeys but there are actually medical practitioners who are i have to say this very carefully because obviously it's sensitive but there are medical practitioners who are very eager to begin working with these substances with their clients uh, even though this would be an act of civil disobedience Wow. <clears throat> well, indeed, if enough people are civilly disobedient, then they just can't arrest everyone. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, incidentally, the, the woman who um, was charged once with holding, allegedly holding these um, mushroom journeys, um, after her stay of prosecution was issued, she was arrested a second time, also allegedly for hosting a mushroom ceremony. The reason she was arrested was for the same uh, same reason as the first time. She needs um, to lock her doors. She does, yeah. She needs to... Um, uh, someone slipped out of her care and ended up at the police station. Sorry, no. In this case... Uh, sorry, uh, the details escape me now. But, yeah, someone slipped out of her care in a second case and, and reported her and the police did come back and arrest her charged her a second time and then the docket disappeared so mm. she she's an old woman she's now in her she's approaching her mid-70s um the she's absolutely determined that she's going to push this um whole process through and as far as the constitutional court which is the highest court in the country um arguing that the substance is too potentially beneficial for us um for it to be illegal are you the only person reporting on her or are others? There have been one or two other stories, but very low key. And in many respects, not more sort of um, sort of light, fluffy and sensational in the in the reporting. Not many of the local reporters who've covered the story have taken a serious scientific focus. They've more treated it as a as quirky sort of subculture story. 
which is, um, uh, you know, it's fun to read on the Sunday pages, but I don't think it adds much to the conversation. Right, right. No, I, I remember those, um, like, scientists say ecstasy could be a cure for trauma, and it's, like, kind of got all these little side jokes in it that, in my opinion, kind of pathologize people who um, take drugs. Uh, yeah. But anyway, that's beside the point. Well, I'd love, if you have any information on it, if, if, if only just to have people follow your podcast, it would be nice to have more of a global attention to her case and so that more support could be brought to mm-hmm. what she's doing. Right, yeah. So um, if anyone's interested in, in hearing more, they can um, listen to the podcast, either search for it on iTunes or whichever podcast platform you use. And you need to search for The Psychonauts. Um, alternatively, you can go directly to the web page, which is www.psychonauts.co.za. And uh, the, very f- the, the welcome message, the introduction, gives an overview of how the podcast came to be. And then um, the second episode, episode two, called The Drug Den, is, uh, is the story specifically about Monica Cromhurt and um, the details of, of her arrest and why she's taking Martin Luther King's approach, just saying the law is unjust and if, if, the law is, if a law is unjust, you know, we have a responsibility to civil disobedience in this regard. Um, so, so that's the approach. Um, incidentally, the, the podcast is not the traditional or the, the usual approach, you know, where people do a Q&A style discussion, which you and I are doing now. My background is in long form narrative and I wanted to write stories in the long form process, but then deliver them verbally rather than for people to read. So that's why it's a scripted podcast rather than what you and I are doing now. Totally. Well, I know as we sort of come to the end of the time I have you for the psychodologist right now, I was wondering if I could ask a question about what makes it worth it to you to put yourself at risk like this and your reputation. That's a very good question. And I, and I, I wonder about this. (laughs) I think I just, I'm going to give you the long answer because it has been a huge risk. In fact, this is a completely self-funded, self-taught um, process. I've taught myself podcasting, and um, I haven't d- had any funding to pay for my time. I've literally invested about six months' worth of billable hours in the past two years trying to get the story as far as it is, and it's now up to eight episodes. Um, each episode takes about 10 days to produce. So... And, of course, there was reputational risk, and I, I'll tell you why I did it. Um, you know, I've been writing about climate change for 17 years, and suddenly we get to a point in our history, the world just seems to be going up in smoke. Um, you know, Donald Trump gets into the White House. Um, domestically, we, have a, uh, we had um, nine years of a terrible presidency, um, the most dreadful looting of the state coffers. And at the same time, we had three years of extreme weather events um, showing globally that um, the climate debt is finally catching up with us. And I realized that my entire adult professional career had been spent writing about a story that I couldn't really have much effect on. And I, I hit a moment of deep existential distress, particularly after Trump got into the White House, and, and realized that I, I felt like my work was impotent, you know, that I was writing 
in the face of a, um, a freight train that just couldn't be stopped. And then I discovered the psychedelic story. And it wasn't just the fact that I heard about the Monica Cromhurst case. It was the fact that I experienced some deep dose psychedelic processes myself. And as is often the case, once one has experienced these things, it's hard to be quiet about them. And I realized that I had, I have agency, you know, as a, as a South African author and science writer who has a reputation and has a platform. And um, this was a chance to uh, get people talking about the potential of psilocybin as a medicine. You know, we're an extremely traumatized country. Um, I don't want to start trotting out statistics now, but if you look at the level of, of interpersonal and domestic violence, um, terrible levels of alcohol abuse, vicious crime. This is all the bitter fruit of a, a country where the bulk of the population has been marginalized and dehumanized for over 300 years. You know, people are born into the most terrible poverty um, where they are subject to what amounts to repeated levels of trauma, whether it's you know, the, the act of violence of, of someone beating them uh, or mugging them or breaking into their home, or if it's the passive, uh, the passive violence of poverty, where people live with the day-to-day -day uncertainty of not knowing how they're going to feed themselves or their families, living in informal settlements where crime is, is rife. And so we have a desperate need for um, public health intervention and we have a, what they call the big public health gap, where 70% of people who need mental health support in this country are not able to get it from the state. Um, you know, we have a very small, wealthy, middle-class community that is able to buy private health care, but the bulk of the population has to access health care from the state, and the state just is so undercapacitated it can't deliver at the mental health level. Psilocybin, because of the way it works is a relatively easy, safe substance to roll out even amongst lay health workers. You don't have to necessarily be a trained therapist. So I just, I realized that I had, um, I had a small point of leverage within a big, messy system, and I had a responsibility to use that point of leverage to try and bring about real change in a country that desperately needs it. Well... Thank you for your work and the sacrifices that you're making and offering your expertise and your heart and mind to this. And I, I'm heartened by the collective gifts that we're all bringing to this with um, our own experiences. And we all have a role to play in this. And I'm so glad that you are where you are. And thank you. Good. Thank you so much. And it's, uh, it's lovely to meet you in person, having listened to many of your shows. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, same here. You're all every single of those eight episodes is unbelievable. Um, every single one that I've heard anyway, and I look forward to hearing more. Great. Thank you so much. The Psychologist is Consciousness Positive Radio. Find us everywhere podcasts are hosted. For more information, visit us on Facebook or online at thepsychologist.com. Thank you.